From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 69. I've got a good friend and longtime colleague on the show today. He comes from the rehabilitation world, but we've had some awesome discussions on collaborating and bridging the gap between rehab and performance. And it actually speaks to the product that we have on sale this week together. So this is a timely show that's going to attack some of the common uh, debated points in the world of managing baseball athletes and really all overhead athletes. So we're in for a really good show. In lieu of a sponsor this week, I wanted to give you a heads up on a sale that we're running on one of our most popular resources. Functional stability training is a resource that Mike Reinold and I collaborated on to make sure that rehab professionals and strength conditioning coaches were speaking the same language and collaborating so that athletes could get moving efficiently and headed in the right direction. This week, we're going to do 25% off on all functional stability training modules, which includes upper body, lower body, core, and optimizing movement and you get an even bigger discount if you purchase all four together. This sale is gonna be active until this Sunday, July 26th at midnight, and it's gonna get you 25% off if you use the coupon code MLB2020EC at functionalstability.com. Again, that's 25% off on any of the functional stability training offerings with coupon code MLB2020EC at functionalstability.com. Today's guest received his BS in physical therapy from Northeastern University and his doctorate in physical therapy from the Massachusetts General Hospital Institute of Health Professions. He's also a board-certified athletic trainer and certified strength and conditioning specialist. Following his education, he served as facility director of Champion Sports Medicine and the coordinator of rehabilitation research and clinical education at the American Sports Medicine Institute in Birmingham, Alabama, under the direction of Dr. James Andrews. He moved on to serve as both the head athletic trainer and physical therapist for the Red Sox and transitioned to a consultant role for the Chicago Cubs in the years that followed. Now, in addition to running his private practice, Champion Physical Therapy and Performance in Waltham, Massachusetts, he serves as a senior medical advisor for the Chicago White Sox. As a researcher, he has been published extensively in prestigious journals such as the AJSM, JOSPT, and the Journal of Sports Health, and he's also contributed many book chapters to prominent sports medicine publications. His research has won numerous awards, including the 2019 Sports Health's David T. Sisk Award for Best Original Research and the 2002 Excellence in Research Award by the JOSPT. He was also awarded the 2019 ASMI Career Service Award by Dr. James Andrews, Glenn Fleisig, and Kevin Wilk for his contributions to the baseball sports medicine world. I've been fortunate to collaborate with him on a number of products, seminars, and athletes over the past decade, and he's become a good friend and helpful resource to me. Please welcome to the show, Mike Reinhold. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me, man. It's, you know, obviously an, an honor to be involved in, you know, this really awesome podcast. I've been, I've been listening and learning a lot from all the past guests you've had on there. So, you know, it's, it's a blast to get to finally be on and talk shop with you, man. I think this will be a fun one. So, uh, first off, uh, shamelessly, this coincides with a sale we are running. So we should put that out there front and center. Our functional stability training products, um, which, which date back a while because there's, there's upper body, lower body, um, core, and then uh, optimizing movement is kind of like a, re- a resounding principles that unify all those things is on sale. It starts, uh, Wednesday, July 22nd and then Sunday, uh, July 26th at midnight. It's 25% off on all FST products. Um, but I think, you know, this will be a, a good one to, to kind of, I guess, frame the sale. So folks can get uh, 25% off with MLB2020EC as their coupon code at functionalstability.com. But a lot has happened since we we first uh, recorded, I guess, the, the first installment of that. We did optimal shoulder performance before that. Um, you know, you've been in baseball, you know, in, in MLB in some capacity, probably since, you know, the, the mid-2000s, um, you know, and I, I followed not long after that. So I'm curious to get your take on a few things that have evolved. Um, so the first Love one... It. We're, we're gonna, I guess we're gonna attack some, uh, some old wives tales and things like that in the industry. So, um, <laughs> so the other day, uh, I put up, uh, 
an Instagram Q and A and somebody asked, what's something that you did 10 years ago with respect to managing baseball athletes that you no longer do? And it was like the easiest answer ever. And it was just sleep or stretch um, <laughs> to, to that. I probably got uh, 40 or 50 replies of wait, what, or what do you do instead? No way. Really? You got rid of it. Really? Yeah, it was that much. This is a hot, hot topic. So, um, <laughs> and I know you, you've been fighting this battle as well. And, and you know, I, I think we probably fought it from different angles too over the years. So, all right, let's, let's put it out there first. Where has your, uh, where did your brain start on sleeper stretch probably 15 years ago? And where is it now? <laughs> so it's actually a good question. I wonder before we get too deep, who do you think was asking you those questions? Was it players themselves or was it coaches? Like who do you think was jumping in? Could you tell? I, I think it's much more. Uh, coaches and then uh, you know the other Got thing it. that's interesting I was surprised I had like three or four young PTs you know yeah. just out of school who yeah. you know they had seen it in a course or they've seen it online and you know it is yeah. like you see something once on Instagram you don't always see the correction 10 years later right so yeah no that, that makes sense and so I, I'd say I probably haven't done a sleeper stretch in heck it's well over 15 years now. And I think I actually did sleeper stretch for like two weeks before I took a step back and said, wait a minute, this is not a good exercise for so many reasons. Um, so, you know, to talk about sleeper stretch, I, I guess first we talk about the evolution of it. And probably 20 plus years ago now, we started to see the first publications from physicians that worked with injured baseball players that talked about internal rotation loss or GERD, so glenohumeral internal rotation deficit, so GERD. So what happened was, you know, a bunch of doctors, really good doctors, prominent doctors that see injured players, they started noticing, hey, baseball pitchers, they tend to have limited internal rotation when I see them in my clinic when they're hurt. So they said, well, that must be bad. And we started trying to figure out some exercises to increase internal rotation. So sleeper stretch was like a real popular one. By the way, shoulder internal rotation, it's a goofy motion to get back, right? Like in the physical therapy that people that listen, like you get somebody like general orthopedic, like adhesive capsulitis or post-op shoulder, like that's the goofy one that's super hard to get back, right? So a lot of people were kind of like struggling it. But right at the same time that, that this started to become popular, we started publishing and kind of going through all our research showing that, wait a minute, this internal rotation loss is normal and not pathological. So, you know, we were trying to kind of do that simultaneously. But unfortunately now, I think if you were to Google, like, how to work with a baseball player, right, like GERD jumps up, uh, you know, increase internal rotation jumps up. Trust me, every physician we still work with sends us players that says, yeah, their shoulders sore, their GERD, do sleeper stretch, and we just completely ignore it. We usually teach the player why we'll never do sleeper stretch again. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right? But, you know, because that's part of our goal is to evolve. But, you know, I, I think that's where it came from. And it didn't come from, like, a bad spot. Like, it was a good idea. But we totally missed the boat that, A, we probably didn't need to work on internal rotation. That actually wasn't an abnormal finding. But then B is let's not do the most aggressive thing we can. That's almost like a wrestling move, right? To like, you know, to kind of like torque the joint into internal rotation. Like that's never a good idea, right? So so that's kind of why we kind of started getting away from it. It's really aggressive and probably not what we should be doing anyway. And, you know, I think it's an interesting conversation because really the, the landmark paper was that, that three-part disabled throwing shoulder article, which came out, I think that was 2003. So we're 17 years later, and that was something that was, that was kind of boldly put out there. And there was some good stuff in that paper. They talked about, you know, the peel-back mechanism as an avenue for slap injuries in, in throwers. But, you know, that was something that, you know, I, I think it was based also on like this concept of do we see a thicker posterior capsule in throwers? And we we do. But my, in your opinion, is that clinically significant? Yeah. And I don't think we actually do see a yeah. thicker posterior capsule. We may see, uh, you know, a thickening of like the, the posterior band of the inferior capsule, yep. which is technically different. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that's even kind of the real thing, because that's kind of a different type of injury. That's it's kind of like a traction type phenomenon that we tend to see. So um, I don't know. I, I don't even think I, I actually think you 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 gave all that too much credit with what you just said, because you you made it. It actually happened the other way. They said internal rotation is tight. I bet it's the posterior capsule. Yeah. 
they didn't say, oh, it, it, it's the poster capsule. It's limiting poster. They just, we totally guessed as a profession. I'm not saying anyone in particular, like internal rotation was tight. Therefore it must be the poster capsule. Mm-hmm. So, so this was getting out there. And then here's the real problem. The people like myself, Kevin Wilk, you know, a bunch of the other like kind of sports PTs that work in baseball. We were trying to raise our hands and say, Hey guys, we work with healthy baseball players. They have limited internal rotation yeah. too. And by the way, I can probably dislocate all of them out the posterior aspect of their shoulder with ease. Mm-hmm. And we actually even published that. We published a study that showed, you know, you know, we apologize to the players, but we did all the Tampa Bay Rays in spring training one year. We kind of dislocated their shoulders <laughs> like to, to measure how hard it was. Mm-hmm. And they could all sublux posteriorly. Well, didn't, so, uh, didn't Kevin also uh, do a cadaveric model where he actually shined a flashlight through the posterior capsule to demonstrate how, how small, or I guess, insignificant a structure it is that could actually create these kind of adaptations? Yeah. And we actually, this is, this is why podcasts are cool. Cause I can tell you the real story behind that. that I'm not kidding. That was the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving. Right. And that's, you know, that's like a big deal. So remember the, uh, the fellows over at ASMI were doing some shoulder surgeries, you know, type thing. And I remember, I forget which one it was off the top of my head, but I'm just like, Hey, Hey, dissect down a posterior capsule for me. I want to get a picture. And then Kevin and I ran over there and we were just playing with it in the, in the cadaver lab, like literally Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, we're trying to get back to our family. I have family flying into town. Um, but we took a picture to show like, Hey, the posterior capsules, it, it is not the reason. So we were like, we were like trying to scream this from the rooftops, but like, it's never sexy to come out with like the results like that. It's much easier to say internal rotation is limited. It must be the posterior capsule. So like our studies, they're published. You can find them like in Medline and they just didn't get a lot of traction. Like people have selective lit reviews and don't kind of want to see all of them. I like it. So, you know, you, you certainly mentioned that, all right, it's not the capsule. So I think we can agree it's, it's, it's an element of retroversion and, and probably some, some soft tissue changes that, that happen presumably in response to eccentric stress. So maybe, maybe build on that a little bit and let's talk about, um, you know, in addition, the alignment factor where, you know, some folks may have issues more proximally. Like, how are you attacking your internal rotation deficits that you do feel like need to be addressed? So the first thing we do, and this is the big, big part, is we do a good, thorough evaluation of the person. And we take internal and external rotation. We do it on both sides. We add them up. We look for total rotational motion. And we try to figure out the puzzle just based on those numbers. And I just saw a kid literally three, four, five days ago. I forget what it was. It was a very classic story. He said, hey, my sh- I'm a high school baseball player. My shoulder's been sore. I saw the doctor. He said I had GERD. I went to PT. I'm doing the sleeper stretch. My shoulder's not getting any better. So what do you do? So what we do is we, we, we bring him in for an evaluation. We look at his numbers. Every time this happens, we find that they have increased their internal rotation too much. Yep. So now their total rotational motion is too high, and it's because of that gain in IR. They've destabilized the shoulder. They've made themselves worse. And then I look like an expert clinician by simply telling them to stop, yep. right? And that's it. It's addition by subtraction, right? So I would say for the majority of baseball players that I work with, I would say I focus on internal rotation at most 10% of the time. Yep. You know, what's an interesting follow-up to that. Now, like you, you were at ASMI this January. We were there together. And that was one of the more compelling, like, uh, you know, I guess proclamations from the biomechanics folks in house was that you actually don't need all that much internal rotation to throw a baseball. Right. You don't exactly. need that. You definitely don't need 90 degrees. So when I, when I hear people raving, like we got them full internal rotation, it's like, well, what did you tear to get there? You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I hate to say it, but we see it all the time. Then the kid gets an MRI and shows a posterior capsule tear. Definitely seen it. So, so let's think about this now. Like when, when are the physicians going to start putting that piece of that puzzle together that we're, that we see that they, you're like, wait a minute, you said it was tight. So they stretched it. Now it's torn. Mm-hmm. Like, well, that's a big difference between tight and torn. So, <laughs> you know, so we have this big like disconnect, but yeah, you'd probably don't need the IR. The, the baseball player I see that has limited IR is usually the one that is on fire. Right. They're just inflamed. And I, I can't even say that that's accurately a loss of IR mm-hmm. versus just like capsular or, or cuff like irritation, mm-hmm. you know, and, and all you do is you settle them down and their IR tends to come right back. Mm-hmm. So I honestly, 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 honestly have not done a sleeper stretch, posterior capital stretch in most of my career. And I don't focus on it at all. And I don't have any problems with my players. 
You know what I mean? So we're trying to tell people that or like that is, and if you really think about it, you get hurt by losing external rotation more than you get hurt by losing internal rotation. And we're definitely going to touch on that. That's a good one. Interesting. So <laughs> my, my story with sleeper stretches, I was, I was all in on it. Uh, our, our mutual friend, Neil, the, the athletic trainer for the Dodgers kind of turned me on to PRI. I went to my, my first PRI, uh, postural respiration course. Um, came back, brought a couple things from that. And we had a high school kid who was just like locked at 25 degrees of IR. And we had been manually stretching him into IR and <laughs> he had been doing sleeper stretch on his own just to like try to keep his head above water with it and gave him a couple positioning, uh, positional breathing drills. And sure enough, it was like 35, 40 and, and pristine like, <laughs> with, with zero effort. I was like, all right, this is stupid. So in spite of that, I just, I just, I just searched for Google, Im- uh, Google images for sleeper stretch. Um, on that, you are number 13 and I'm number 16. Luckily, your, <laughs> yours says don't use the sleeper stretch. Mine is actually me demonstrating. For, fair, fair enough. It's, it's actually decent technique, but, um, it should, <laughs> should have a big X, X through it. So, um, so what's your roadmap, right? Let's say you, you do get that kid that comes in, uh, with 10 degrees, right? And you want to just settle it down, uh, and you do feel like you need to at least get some more to, to kind of piece together that total motion puzzle. Um, what, what's your, your kind of checklist? So you start off obviously by settling them down if they're, they're symptomatic. And then where do you go from there? Uh, and you said they have a loss of internal rotation. Yeah. Let's, let's say that they're, um, you know, they're, they have a, a GERD side to side of, of 40 degrees, um, you know, and total motion is aberrant and you deem that their dominant shoulder internal rotation is something that needs to be improved. Where, where are you going first? Well, I, I mean, honestly, I, I think this is at, you know, five to 10% of the people I see. Yeah. To be honest, agree, it's agree pretty, 100%. It's pretty, it's pretty yeah. rare, but, um, yeah, the first thing we always go for, and this is a general rule of thumb with me with all of my kind of rehab principles is that we want to go to soft tissue first. Mm-hmm. We never, ever, ever want to torque a joint for yep. no reason. You know, but this is really funny. In, in traditional physical therapy education models, there are a lot of them. Most of them are, you know, like the older osteopathic approaches, like mm-hmm. the manual therapy approaches, they actually teach the kids to go joint first. Interesting. And I don't know if it's just because people like you and I, Eric, are just like we work with so many hypermobile athletes that maybe we're a little jaded or maybe mm-hmm. we just have a better snapshot, but we never, ever do that approach with our athletes. And it's an interesting approach. So we always go soft tissue first. We would work on soft tissue of the posterior shoulder, not the capsule. So like posterior rotator cuff, even posterior deltoid, a little yep. teres major sometimes, like that helps a little bit. We work on posterior shoulder soft tissue mobility and then reassess. Mm-hmm. And that's key. You have to reassess right there. See if you got your motion back or maybe you got half of it back, right? And then kind of go to that next thing. If if that didn't get it back, which it probably would have, mm-hmm. then we would probably start doing some like some stretching like of cross body adduction, so horizontal adduction, mm-hmm. not IR. So again, you see, we're not focusing on IR to get yeah. IR back. So we go across the body, maybe a little contractor lax, and they would that would that would probably be it. But honestly, I'd probably do that for like two sessions, and then we'd be moving on to bigger and better things. I'm, I'm in the same boat. You know, we, I'd say we probably spend a little bit more time proximally too, like soft tissue work on, you know, there's stuff on scalenes, there's stuff on subclavius. Um, you can work on T-spine mobility and get IR. There's, there's all these different boxes <laughs> right. you can check before you, you would actually go to ever even consider like actually torquing the joint. And I think that's probably right. an important discussion point is right. You have a, we always come back to like a shoulder is a delicate joint. It has a ton of available motion. It's not a hip that you can just crank on and get away with anything. Like you actually have to be a little bit more cognizant. Mechanically, what do you think is happening when people are, are, are effectively hurting themselves when they do a sleeper stretch? Well, I mean, if you actually look at the anatomy of it, what you're doing is you're taking the shoulder, you're kind of closing down the subacromial space where the rotator cuff sits and you are like torquing the joint at end range. Mm-hmm. Right. And look, we would, we, we don't do that for any other joint. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. why, I don't know why we do that. So this is what I always ask players. I say, Oh, you've been doing the sleeper stretch. What do you think? And they're like, I love it. I'm like, okay. Uh, why do you love it? He's like, oh, I, I feel it. It feels awesome. Like, where do you feel it? And they point right to the front of their shoulder yep. and they say, yeah, I feel like a big sharp pain right there. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I go, that's not your rotator. That's where your rotator cuff attaches. I always tell them like, that's the equivalent of saying, Hey, your quad's tight. 
hop on your stomach. Let's, let's flex your knee. Let's bend your knee back. Try to touch your butt. And instead of feeling a stretch in your quad, you felt a sharp pain in your tib tube, like underneath your kneecap. Like you would never do that stretch, right? Absolutely. So, so I don't know why we do it with the shoulder when the shoulder has like less stability and we're just torquing it. And, um, I don't know. It's, it, to, to me, I, I, it's, it's just, it's stay away from that. And to be honest with you too, you brought up, you brought up PRI, you brought up some postural things. I just, I would, to add to that, I would just say, remember if your, your primary focus, is on stuff proximal and or positional, right? Then you will gain IR and lose ER. Correct. Just keep that in mind. And remember, I think you get hurt when you lose ER. So, so I, I don't even know what I'm saying, tre- but tre- it's just tread more lightly. <laughs> tread lightly. <laughs> exactly. Right. But I think it's, when it's, I, it's when it's structured correctly, right? So you, you do those things right. proximally, but then you have to come back and you've got to look at, you know, do I need to do more work to actively gain control right. of external rotation or reestablish that? Um, you know, it's a, it's a central to distal, right? I, I think the most important thing you can do is just make sure you're thoroughly assessing both sides yep. and both ERIR and be very like strict with what you're trying to accomplish. Like don't just blindly try to get as much internal rotation as you can. Right. Because something That's else true. is going to sacrifice if you do too much. I think that would be my biggest thing is you have to assess. Mm-hmm. It's it's a cool party trick to see the the transient change of fifty degrees of internal rotation, but very, very <laughs> few people go to check and see if they've lost lost it on the other side. Um, right, right, right. So, all right, we're gonna we're gonna shift gears and 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 we're gonna hit a a completely different uh, sacred cow in the baseball industry that's become a big conversation point. Weighted baseballs. Um, I I think I've been using them since two thousand nine, uh, in some capacity, maybe even before that. Now that I think about it, I think we had some two thousand eight ones as well. Um, and certainly earlier on, we were throwing a bunch of poop on the wall to see what sticks. And you know, the the program has gotten much more refined since then. And we've we've you know kind of changed the way that we attack things. You've done some good research on it. Um, so there, there were two particular papers that have been landmark, um, in, in kind of defining, you know, what weighted balls, you know, do, how people respond to them, you know, and also how can we implement them safely? So maybe we, uh, maybe we cover them one by one. So let's talk about the first one, which I think it won some awards, right? You got a ton of press on the, uh, the first one. Yeah, it depends. We, uh, so our first one was our big six week study. So we wanted to see like the effects of a six, six week study. And we, 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 we were the most read uh, article for that journal, the Journal of Sports Health, which is a really big journal. Uh, we're the most read article for the year and we won the award with AOSSM for like the best research paper of the year. So the medical community loved it. We also won the award of most hated article on Twitter, right? <laughs> so, you know, so it's, you know, it's the medical community loved it. They loved our, you know, methodology and what we, what we showed with the results. I, and I think the rest of the world was just like a little stunned that, wait a minute, maybe these things aren't as magical and perfect as we once thought. Maybe we should kind of take a step back. And and I, look, same thing that we said about sleeper stretch. It's not good. It's not bad. It's not any of those things. The popularity was probably a little bit ahead of the science, mm-hmm. right? And and that's how it works now, especially with social media, right? Yeah. It's so easy to get information out. They became really popular. And a lot of people think they're magical. And I, unfortunately, here's the part that stinks. It's like the sleeper stretch. Some people actually have a lot of misconceptions about them that they don't understand the science. And they're based on some of the theories we had like 10 years ago on what might be happening. But we're kind of starting to refute those theories. So, so that's kind of where we are. So, so we actually, there's three phases of the study. One I wasn't involved in, but Dr. Fleissig looked at some of the biomechanics. He's, he's the head biomechanist of ASMI with Dr. Andrews, but he, um, he, um, he looked at the biomechanics of it. And I think that was a real important paper just to kind of lay some of the framework of what happens while you throw the ball just one time. Then for us, we wanted to say, what does a very typical program that the kids are doing these days. And I'm not just talking about like college minor league guys, but literally like 10 year olds are doing programs like this. Now, what does a typical program do to the body? So, you know, we had a control group, we had, you know, really strong methodology or wouldn't have been published, wouldn't have won awards, but it was comparing a group that did and didn't do a weighted ball program. And you know what? It's, you know, I, to give it credit, velocity went up. Yeah. We did see a significant increase in velocity. If you just to define what what's what, what were the age ranges of the the subjects in this program, just so that folks know, uh, it was high school. So okay. off the top of my head, I think it was fourteen to seventeen. Okay. I think our our mean age we actually we calculated our mean age wrong. 
um, only statistically wrong. Meaning like if you're a 15 in 364 days, mm-hmm. you're 15. Okay. You know what I mean? So yeah. when you look at our mean, it's lower than their actual age because a lot of kids were about to turn 16 or 17 or even 18. But we didn't use like fractional years. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was a little misleading. So I'd say the average age was probably about 16, 17. Okay. Um, so it's high school kids, six week program. They all did a nice warm up. They all were throwing for a period of time. They're all doing strength training and arm care exercises. Like they're all prepped for this program. One then just started to just continue doing a normal throwing program at five ounces, and one started a gradual progression of a weighted ball program. There was a really slow progression. Like the first week, again, off the top of my head, I think they did kneeling throws with a light ball, like like 75% effort, 15 times. Like, like that's it. Like yeah. this, it wasn't really aggressive. And it grew over the course of six weeks to, to include running guns and rocker throws and everywhere from two ounce to two pound balls. Um, and this is exactly what we're seeing the kids bring into us and show us that, hey, these are the programs we're doing. Yeah, so, if, if anything, I'd, I'd say it was even a little bit more moderate than some of the, the crazy stuff we've seen. It, it, was, it was well structured. I, co- I completely agree. One of the biggest criticisms we got was that the kids did two pound running guns. Yep. Which, A, is happening in real life, unfortunately. Yep. That's something to keep in mind. Uh, but B is like, like running guns with a two pound ball kind of self limits. Yeah. Like you, you really don't throw them that hard. Like the velocity is like probably 50%. It's just, it's not as stressful as like people necessarily think. Now, I wouldn't necessarily yeah. do it, but it was like, I'm not kidding. If you look at the total reps of the program, it was less than 4% of the entire study. And you, and in reality, those happen a lot more than people realize. They just don't get posted on, on Twitter because it doesn't blow up the radar gun. <laughs> you know? Exactly. That's a, that's a, that's a great point. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and keep this in mind too. If you do some variations of any type of throw, rocker, reverse pickoff, anything, if you do that with a two up to five pound balls, which we're seeing with moderate intensity with volume, that's actually probably way worse. Mm-hmm. In terms of like the general scope of the body, that's actually yeah. way worse. So, so again, I'm, I appreciate that you said you thought the program was moderate because we we called it conservative, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. But, but in a nutshell, velocity went up, went up a little over three percent. That's a pretty good gain. Um, but if you break down our numbers, it's actually a little bit less exciting than you think. So statistically, yes, velocity went up. About eighty percent of people in the weight ball group went up. Twelve percent went down. Interesting. So it didn't work on everybody. But how about this? In the control group, 65%, give or take, went up in velocity too. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's, again, these aren't like complete, the gains seen between the two groups weren't like amazing. They weren't outstanding. And that's, that's really significant because we're not just talking about like, let's be honest, like high school kids, you train it for six months, puberty makes you look really smart. Six weeks is a much, yes. much shorter time period. So it is, it is clinically yes. significant to see those. Right. And don't forget the control group was still just, they're still doing some like moderate long toss and stuff with a five ounce ball. I yeah. mean, not, nothing crazy. Like we yeah. weren't letting them go to like 300 feet. It was just like a 120 program, like intentionally designed to be moderate so we can compare them and they still went up. Yeah. Right. So, so it was kind of interesting. So yes, there were some velocity increases, but the injury rates were the real kicker. So we had to exclude two kids from the study during it because they started to have elbow pain. And remember, these aren't subjects. These aren't rats that we put in a cage. These are like our kids. You know what I mean? Like they train at our place. Like these are our our people. So so we excluded them with elbow pain. But the real kicker for me was two others in the next in the next season. They had two pretty pretty big injuries. So we had some molecular stress fractures, and then we we actually had a Tommy John that actually decided to retire and not even play pass that. He's better at golf than baseball anyway. <laughs> and so um, yeah. you know, so we we had we had a twenty four percent injury rate which is way too high, right, to to actually to do that. So And that's twenty four percent over six weeks. Like that to me is the crazy part. Like I think there yes. was a I think we there was like a study a long time ago that was like fifty seven percent of pitchers, you know, report some kind of shoulder issue over the course of a competitive calendar. Like right. and, and you hit twenty four percent in six weeks. And that I mean that is right. just off the charts to me. So Right. And we're talking about New England high school kids. Yeah. Right. So they are not getting worn out in their yeah. high school season. And you're having a, a Lecronon like fracture. You're having uh you're having a Tommy John injury and a 16, 17 year old kid that doesn't have a lot of innings. It's that's, that's an even bigger finding to me. If we did the study in Texas, yeah, who knows what we would have found. Right. Oh, no doubt. Like, 
something to keep in mind. Like these kids are not abused, you know, this, you know, these aren't, these kids aren't going to like, they weren't going to like D1 Vandy stuff, like programming. These are just like normal high school kids playing college ball in New England. Yeah. It's crazy. So, so that was the first study. You mentioned that there was, there was some outrage. What were, what were some of the nastiest emails and, and tweets you received? I, you know, you know what I always try to kind of like relate it to. It's like there's so much traction going in the baseball community that weighted balls were amazing, right? They're perfect. They helped it, it, all the theories out there. They increase arm strength. They increase arm speed. They neuromuscular repatterning. I don't know what on earth that phrase means, by the way, right? But like yeah. all these potential theories, uh, they they were kind of all proven wrong. So yeah. you know, Dr. Fleissig study showed it didn't increase arm strength. Our study actually showed that it probably inhibited arm strength. So our control group went up like 13% in their rotator cuff strength in six weeks. That's enormous, yeah. by the way. You know how proud we are of that fact? That's a, that's that a very big deal. Yeah, that's huge. And our weighted ball group didn't. And of course, it's a, it's stressful throwing. Like that's the first step we always talk to people about. Throwing a baseball is bad for you. Yeah. Right. So if you add distance, if you add weighted balls, if you add uh, volume, it, it's just more stress. Right. So, of course, it's going to inhibit their strength gains. Um, even, so though they, even, though they've, they've, even though some of those folks do basically put out there that you will increase arm strength. That's one of my my, my biggest. Right. I wrote an article years ago, like throwing doesn't build arm strength. Right. It's just a matter yes, of how yes. quickly it falls off. It's pulling the parachute. <laughs> well, think about it. If throwing if it were true, then your solution to get a stronger arm is to throw more. And we all know we see people do this all the time. Their arms are getting really tired and they're yeah. like hanging their mechanics thing. So what do they do? Well, I'm going to throw more. That's what Twitter yeah. said to do. Right. And, 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 and they throw more and they get way worse. So, and it's just, that's just common sense. But like, like the, I get everything is so sensationalized on the internet nowadays. It's hard to have kind of common sense. And that's what we're trying to do with the research is trying to say, Hey, like, look, these things aren't evil. They're just different and yeah. they are stressful. Of course they're stressful. Right. So we kind of, we know that, but like, but we just, we have to dose it appropriately. And again, I think just like the internal rotation thing, I would love to see weighted balls be at no more 10% of what we do with, with players in the future. Cause they, yeah. they probably shouldn't be much more than that. Well, and I, and I think, you know, so, all right. So study number one, I think one of the hugest takeaways <laughs> there, people have to infer from it. And I think it's good for us to put out there is like, if you're a young athlete, like find the easy windows of adaptation, right? Right. Get, get stronger, throw the med ball, do these things that we know are proven effective time and time again, that right. you know, have dr dramatically lower injury risk. And, right. and then, you know, once you're older, you're more mature, you've got a good foundation in place, start attacking the sexier stuff in, in the right. right amount of volumes in an organized program. Yeah, if you're going to push your physiology a little bit, you have to be like, you have to have maxed out all your buckets. Yeah. Right. So you, you have, you have to be super strong. You have to be mature. You have to have good arm strength. You should have good mechanics. Yeah. And then let's start pushing the physiology. But look, I, I, great example again. Last week, talking to an ex MLB all star pitcher. So this guy's no, no scrub, mm -hmm. right? His kids are now in high school. Right. So I'm dating myself a little bit here. I, I know, I know all the old guys, but he's literally sending me videos of his kid. And he's like, you know, I'm trying, I've completely limited his, his volume as a kid because I've been saving it. So that's great. And he's like, but like, look, we're struggling to get past like, you know, low eighties. And he's like thinking about doing like a weighted ball program, that type of thing. And he sends me a video. The kid has no drive. Right. So no, no linear like drive, no rotational power, no hip shoulder separation. Right. Why on earth would we give him a weighted ball to throw at this point when he hasn't maximized any of his other buckets? Why would you go to the one thing that adds stress when you could just just, you know, get stronger, get a more bulletproof arm, have better mechanics that drive down the, the mound. You know what I mean? Like yeah. everybody's just jumping the gun because it's just not as sexy and it's not a quick it's not a quick buy off the internet, right? You can't just buy, uh, you know, 12 months of strength training. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like, like you true. can't just upgrade your body. <laughs> you know, and I think we, we've touched on some, some good points here. And I think it leads to like kind of the third big rock, you know, so talk to me a little bit about why you feel like those guys were getting hurt. Cause I think it, it leads to a, a very important third discussion point. Yeah. So I, so we talked about the findings that I think the world liked from that study, but there was one finding that drove me crazy and I hated it. It was that after a six week weighted ball program, the players went up in external rotation. So they had more layback of their shoulder. 
And it, it wasn't a shift. They didn't lose IR, right? We kind of yeah. talked about that previously. They gained external rotation, mm-hmm. right? And, and seriously, when we're, when we're looking at the numbers, cause what are the clinicians? We literally are like, Oh boy, like that's not what we wanted to find. Yeah. Right. And if you take a step back and think about it, 15 or well, 10, 15, 20 years ago, injuries to baseball players, they were like completely different completely different from what we're seeing right now, yeah. right? Right now we're actually starting to see traumatic injuries in a repetitive, atraumatic sport. Yeah. So what I mean by that is we're seeing lat tears, Terry's tears. I saw a pec tear. I saw a rib fracture. I saw an uh, an- anterior dislocation. <laughs> I, oof, so that's yeah. one of the, I, yeah. so anterior dislocation and a cuff tear on one pitch in a mound in a game. I've seen both. It's devastating. Yeah. The guy's down on the ground and his career's over and he knows it. Yep. Right. A humeral fracture. So we're starting to see traumatic injuries in a repetitive atraumatic sport. It's ridiculous. So so when we saw this gain in external rotation, it all made sense. No wonder why we're seeing lat tears. No wonder why we're seeing subscap tears. You know how hard it is to tear your subscap? You're not kidding. That's, that, <laughs> that's crazy that we're seeing subscap tears. So we're seeing all these like new injuries from this forced layback. And we know through science that more layback equals more velocity, but it also increases stress on your shoulder and your Tommy John ligament. So all of this is starting to sound like common sense, right? You're just like, oh, okay, yeah, that, yeah, right. I get it. That makes sense. So yes, you get more layback. Yes, you get more velocity, but it's more stress and more injury rates. And all of a sudden now everything makes more sense. So we saw that in the six-week program and we were like, whoa, right? But remember, we did like a I, we did like a, 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 a general six week program. Mm-hmm. So our next study, and this was just published recently a few weeks ago in Sports Health again, our next study, where well, we tried to say like, wait a minute, let's not throw all the weight balls out. Maybe some are okay and some are not okay. Right. So we wanted to come up with different buckets. So what we did this time is we looked at the acute. So meaning the immediate change in shoulder range of motion from throwing weighted balls. And we have them come on three different days. We measured their range of motion. They went through some balls. They warmed up through some balls. And then we immediately measured their range of motion again, right? We had three different groups or three different days. One was an underload day. So they went like, you know, four ounce, two ounce. Uh, the next one was a, uh, like a light overload day. I believe it was six and nine ounces. And then the, the other one, the heavy overload day was one and two pounds. And it was funny when we were measuring the kids, like afterwards, when we did the underload balls, no change in range of motion. And that makes sense. That's, yeah. that's an interesting finding. We were cool with that. Mm-hmm. The light overload ball, six, nine ounce, we actually started to see it. We were like, okay, all right, that just changed it. But I'm not kidding, Eric. When we looked at the one, two pound balls, the, the amount of layback was alarming. I remember like, you literally... told me that you and Lenny looked, looked at each other and were like, oh, my God. We looked at each other and we said, I think this is our last study on weighted balls. A, <laughs> I, know, I know everything I need to know, but B, I'm not, I'm, I'm not messing with my kids anymore. I know what I need to know, and I, I completely understand the science of weighted balls in my head now. Right, So the weighted balls, the heavier the ball you use, and it doesn't matter if it's max intensity or not, right? Every stress is an equation. You have to put the intensity with the volume and the weight of the ball together, right? So it, it, you just got to play with those variables. But the heavier the ball, the more increase in layback you have. We had some kids with 15 degrees of external rotation increased in like five minutes. That's that's the crazy part to me is that you can, you can improve range of motion really, really quickly, right? That's kind of a cool party trick, whatever. You know, you do some soft tissue work, you stretch. It, it just, it opens you up to this huge risk factor, this huge window of, of injury. And the problem is the, the, the strength and the, the proprioception, the motor control that it takes to control that new motion, that takes six months to develop. You know what I mean? It's a much more yeah, product yeah, right. adaptation. Um, right. And, and, and to be honest with you, that I think that's a very optimistic thought, which yeah. I, I, I don't know if we can control that. That is past their physiological limits. And yeah. what they've probably done is desensitized the fibers in their shoulder that are designed to limit that because yeah. you're putting yourself at, at an injury risk. So even if, I don't even know if you can gain control on that, but I, I think the only thing we don't know is, is there a happy medium? Yeah. Like, can you go up five degrees, 10 degrees? I don't know what it is, but like, I've learned enough. I think we've definitively proven now in these series of studies that weighted balls do help with velocity. Uh, not probably as much as you think. It's not magical. By the way, the only other study that looked at a six-week program that had a bunch of different weights of balls in it was actually published by Driveline, mm-hmm. and they actually showed no change in velocity. 
So one of the things I'm, I'm curious about is, is when this happened. So I'll, I'll say this. There have been other studies in the past that have said weighted balls don't increase shoulder external rotation. And when you actually look at the methods, those studies took place at the end of a competitive season. It was almost like, I think it was in pro, pro, pro guys where they threw it on instructs. The assumption there is that, all right, if guys already have 100 innings on their arm, they've already acquired most of their external rotation. Would you agree that, that like, we're, we're talking about Northeast kids in the wintertime, like, they're vulnerable early on in that throwing program if you ramp up too quickly. Like, to me, that's always been the biggest recipe for disaster with weighted balls. You take a, a hypermobile kid who doesn't have a foundation of strength, has no body awareness, and then you get him a weighted ball program that on-ramps really quickly. Right, right. I, I think you're totally right. And the only thing I would other say, like the thing I would say again, just because we do so much with baseball players, I would say the majority of studies I read on baseball players, um, they don't measure the shoulder correct. So I actually don't think the other studies are even valid. Let's talk about that. When you're measuring external rotation, this is something I see all the time. Talk to me about how you do it and, and where you see the common mistakes are. Yeah, I mean, the big thing with external rotation is you have to be able to pick up the slack. And most people aren't picking up the slack. Some just report active range of motion. Yeah. And, and I, for people that work in baseball, you realize that the elasticity at their end range is gigantic. Mm-hmm. And if you actually compare it side to side, the elasticity on their throwing side is more than their non-throwing side. So if you just bring them to the beginning of resistance, you're not getting their true elasticity. And that's what makes them a baseball player. So most people aren't pushing enough external rotation. If you see a study and like the mean external rotation is like 90 degrees, mm-hmm. just put the study down. Yeah, it's, it's, right. Right. it's, it's they're, they're obviously, they're, they haven't taken it past R1, right? They haven't gone R2. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, so, the kids in our study, dude, they were like 140 degrees of external rotation. Yeah. <laughs> so, so here's an interesting follow-up question to that. So you, you look at, at that and then you also have, uh, like Chris Camp's group has, has shown, you know, a pretty good relationship between shoulder flexion limitations and, uh, you know, elbow pathology in the season that follows. So are, are those things kind of at like two different ends of the spectrum, right? The, the implication there, if shoulder flexion is poor, you're usually thinking lat teres being your limiting factor. Those are also, you know, musculature that would theoretically limit external rotation. Um, Correct, you know, right. So, it, you know, are we talking about that being a problem and that the other end of the spectrum of folks who acquire external rotation too quickly being in the, is, is the secret just to be like right in that happy middle ground? Yeah, and you got to think of like so when when we see that loss of shoulder flexion correlates to injury, we have to be careful to not like have like a false pseudoscience where like A equals B, so B yeah. equals C. That's not that's not how it works. The transitive so, property of shoulder care. <laughs> yeah, like 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 the shoulder. I could care less about shoulder flexion, but don't get me wrong. I think it's one of the number one barometers of the status of your shoulder. So if we look at a guy that throws a ton, and we're talking about the guys that are pushing layback, especially if you're doing long toss, you're doing weighted balls, you're doing all these warm-ups, you get this this layback, your lat, your teres, your internal rotators, even like your pec, your subscap, they all get traumatized, yep. right? So what happens is, is those all get tight, external rotation gets a little yucky, and then, of course, they lose elevation because that's the muscles that also you need to have elevation. So shoulder flexion in and of itself. So that if we use this reverse psychology, then we would be doing inferior joint mobs on all of our people now yeah. instead of posterior cap mobs. But it's not A equals B, B equals C. It's it's the shoulder flexion to me is the barometer that these yeah. guys are messed up. So if you go through a weight ball program for like six weeks or even like a whole winter, oftentimes these things are jacked up. And you see them, they, you look at them side to side, like flexion's like 150 versus, you know, normal on the other side. It's a big difference. You just see those muscles are angry. You know, I think the other thing that's really interesting, and you highlighted the, there were, I think you, I think you said there was at least one olecranon stress fracture, you know, in this group. Like, first off, that's a big deal. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's basically a Tommy John in terms of the timeline that you're looking to come back from it. You know, it's, right. a, it's a more involved surgical intervention too. Um, so, you know, I think that for me is, is, is the one that jumps out the most because it's a bony issue. You know what I mean? And, and, and a lot of times we, we see a bony issue and it's the kind of thing where you're, you know, you and I both know you can look at every draft MRI and you're going to see a bunch of stress reactions on elbows. You know, you might see some proximal humeral stuff depending on how the MRI is done. Like, 
do we have a lot of kids in this, you know, kind of um, this age demographic of 14 to 18 who are who are on these aggressive throwing programs who are really just ticking time palms? They, they haven't necessarily hit a symptomatic threshold, but when we actually image them, they do have these bony issues, you know, presumably because, you know, they are skeletally immature still that are just waiting to reach threshold and that we need to like get in and out of points of stress, you know, with their not just throwing programs, but the aggressive throwing programs that they're coveting. Yeah, I mean, you could think about it. We're we're about to enter a really interesting era in baseball because this is now the summation of all these kids that have been doing this their entire life now. This is the first time you could say that the people entering college and minor league baseball grew up doing this, right? Like yeah. 10, 10 years ago, they started dabbling in it, like, but now this is like a part of the baseball culture. So if you actually look at the trends, if you look at Tommy John's and baseball, and we don't even know in college, that's probably way worse. If you actually look at it, the amount of Tommy John's in Major League Baseball is slightly down. Yeah. Right? It's it's actually down a little bit. But Major League Baseball, it is – I mean, excuse me, Minor League Baseball, it's four times higher. That's absurd. It's, it's absurd how many – so I think, you know, if you look 20 years ago, like when I first started doing this stuff, I feel like the person that got Tommy John was like the 33, 35-year-old veteran with mileage, right? And I think that's part of why our success rates were so good is they really weren't terrible. They just had mileage, right? So they had a lot of wear and tear from the years, and they, they got back. They were okay. I think what we're seeing now is the peak where instead of you getting injured 30, 35, you're getting injured kind of like in college in minor league baseball now. And there, it is going to be very interesting to see how many of these people make it back because now we're starting to see multiple Tommy Johns, right? We never saw that before. Yeah. Revisions never saw that, yeah. right? So now we're seeing multiple Tommy Johns. We're seeing people. So I wonder if like our careers are being shortened big time. And that's why we're starting to see like this, the, the arc shift that we're starting to have injuries earlier. And, and I, I honestly can't say, I don't think we're going to see a lot of 200 inning guys anymore. And I don't think we're going to yeah. see a lot of 2000 inning guys anymore. I had this conversation the other day with a couple of different guys, in fact. Um, so one of the things that, that we, we kind of indirectly hinted at, but we didn't actually discuss. So obviously one of the big reasons why we, we think we're seeing, or I, I would say we can say we, we know we're seeing more injuries with, with weighted ball programs is the rapid increase in passive external rotation, right? So that happens quickly. And what's interesting is range of motion studies in, in baseball can be tricky, right? You know, there's some that have shown that GERD matters and some that show that it doesn't, right? So sometimes they can be a little intriguing. So I'm, I'm curious, does this just lend more credence to the, the thought that above all else, that shoulder has to be strong, right? We need to have a cuff that is able to manage the arthrokinemax of the joint correctly, um, you know, to overcome maybe the, the crazy things that are happening osteokinematically as we get, you know, grittier through our lats and as we acquire way more extra rotation. Absolutely. I think it's going to always come down to that. So what we're seeing is we're seeing the current generation of baseball players destabilize their shoulders more so than the past. Mm -hmm. So they're creating a larger amounts of range of motion, larger amounts of windows of total rotational motion. So they're, they're so more mobile that they have to be strong and dynamically stabilized. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is then, then they throw so much every freaking day that yeah. even if you get really strong, you're super tired and fatigued. Um, I don't know. I just, I hate to sound pessimistic and I am more on the medical side of things, but like, it's a, not a good recipe that we're in right now. We're just, we're in a really weird time in baseball. And, you know, I hope 10 years from now we yeah. look back and we get through this, but man, like I, I wish it was as simple as just saying you need to get your shoulders stronger. I, I like it. So there's, there's, I'm going to ask you one follow-up question, but I think it's good to, to recap, right? So don't sleep or stretch. There are better ways to yeah. get the job done that don't provoke things as much. Weighted balls work. They probably don't work quite as well as we thought they do. And we need to make sure that they're used in the right populations, in the right doses, at the right times. We know that acquiring external rotation quickly is probably a recipe for shoulder, elbow, or a host of other issues that, um, you know, are, are emerging, it seems like daily. Strength matters a ton, even when we don't know that range of motion matters, because that's a little bit more questionable. Having a strong shoulder joint, you know, particularly the rotator cuff musculature is huge. So those are our, our four key takeaways. And this is going to save me a bunch of time because I can just send people to this podcast <laughs> to hammer off. But I want to actually, I want to throw one more at you. And this is the, the closing question is, what do we do about it? Right. Cause, and, I, and I'll, I'll say this, right. I've, I've been to strength edition conferences. I've been to pitching conferences and I've been to sports medicine conferences. And we always ask surgeons what to do. 
And every time it becomes like, it's like the grandpa from the Simpsons, right? He's on his, his porch, like yelling at kids to get <laughs> off his yard. And p- young kids do not, um, they don't identify with that. Right. Because right, right. the, the, the assumption is that, you know, they're just focused on keeping people healthy. They don't know how to actually develop. And, you know, I, I, is, is the, is the solution to, to propose better ways of doing this? Is the solution to highlight pro athletes who have done things the right way? Because it's not just as simple as don't throw, you know, don't play catch right, past right. 90 degrees. Cause we both know you can, you can tell people long toss is, is dangerous or whatever it is. They're still going to go throw 350. What's, what's the right. solution in your eyes to make this better? I, I think we get to teach the coaches because the coaches are the ones selling it to the parents and the kids. And they're the ones that are, you know, probably making the bigger difference. Our job as the medical community is to do the research and then share the science. So that way then the coaches can make the adjustment with what they do every day. So look again, weighted balls, like you said, they work probably not as magical as we think, but they increase the stress. Let's just call a spade a spade, long toss, uh, weighted balls, any, the more aggressive you are, the more you throw, it's just more stressful. We have to, we have to lower our dosing. We're just overdosing, right? So nothing's evil. I don't, you can use a 20 pound ball for all I care, right? It's just, it's all a change of the equation. It's physics, right? So we have to teach the coaches that, but then more importantly, I think this is the biggest thing we have to teach the coaches that this should be a small part of their development. This is not magic. So most coaches that are just blindly doing this right now, Eric, you know this. Yeah. They think it's magical. They think not only is it safe, but it's protective. And they think it works in everybody. And then literally five kids on their college team get Tommy John surgery in one season. <laughs> and you're like, we, we have seen that. <laughs> yes. We've bo- seen that. In, in we, both know which, we both know which program we're talking about. It was like five <laughs> Tommy Johns and a lat in a single fall when they adopted that, something that, like this. I, and I, I know three uh, colleges in New England that I can think of just off the top of my head that that happened to, right? So we have to, we, I think we have to say is, look, this is a small part of it. It is stressful. It is more stressful. So we have to be careful how we dose it. But more importantly, this is not how you develop pitching performance. It's a very small variable. And the other ways are probably more effective and no stress. But right, one last thing I wanted to add. I know we're running out of time. No, one last thing. New study was just published this this year that showed that 87% of the force that contributes to your velocity on your fastball comes from your legs and your transfer through your core. It's not your arm. And we know that. We all know that. You know that. I know that. The medical community knows that. The strength community knows that. We cannot focus on the 13% if we're trying to increase velocity. You don't want to throw a weighted ball. You want to get your linear strength your, or, or your leg strength, your linear power, your rotational power, your trunk. Like that is how you develop pitching performance. Otherwise, we're just going to have a bunch of guys that throw really hard for a short amount of time and can't throw strikes. That's awesome stuff. All right. So shameless self-promotion. We have a sale. <laughs> the coupon code is MLB 2020 EC. That gets you 25% off on all functional stability training modules. Um, the full package uh, is already heavily discounted if you buy it together and it's even more so. So that's a great deal. There's four different ones. Um, folks can check it out. It's at functionalstability.com. That runs until Sunday, 726 at midnight. If you listen to this podcast in 2023, sorry, you're missing out. (laughs) (laughs) Mike, Mike, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Folks can find out more about you at MikeReinold.com. It's uh, it's Mike Reinold on, on Twitter as well, correct? Yeah, it's, I think it's, I have almost everything. So everything, Mike, Mike. At, at, at everything except Gmail. I'm still angry about that. Don't, <laughs> don't email that dude. He's in Germany somewhere. It's not good, but <laughs> nice. But, uh, but, Instagram but and Twitter, you're there. Yes. But thank you, Eric. Thanks. You know, it's an honor to be involved and, you know, good luck with the rest of the show. Congrats. Thanks again. This is fun. Thanks, bub. A friendly reminder as we wrap up that sale on functional stability training goes through this Sunday, July 26th at midnight. If you head to functionalstability.com and enter the coupon code MLB2020EC at checkout, it'll get you 25% off on this popular resource that I think you'll really enjoy. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. 
We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.